You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, now that the votes have been tallied, we'll dig into the local election results. Progressive candidates surged ahead in later counts and have claimed victory in the races for District 5 supervisor and district attorney. Well, I think that Chesa Boudin is going to do some really interesting, positive things for criminal justice reform. It seems pretty clear that from the get-go, he's going to have to work really, really hard to unite the city. So how will that affect how the city works and what gets done? A simple majority on the board would be six votes. A supermajority would be eight. And a supermajority means that any legislation that the Board of Supervisors passes with eight votes is veto-proof from the mayor. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. After several nail biters in the local election, the votes have been tallied, leads have flipped, victories have been claimed, and one concession made in the contentious local races. And to some astonishment in both the District 5 supervisor's race and the district attorney's race, voters chose progressive, even radical, candidates over Mayor London Breed's appointees. We'll talk about what that says about the direction the city is going to take, as well as the results of some of the less contentious races and the ballot measures with Nula Sawyer-Bishari. She's an independent reporter and former news editor of SF Weekly. Nula, welcome. Thank you. In an earlier interview, I called the turnout of this election not particularly high at 27%. That's changed, and we're now at more than 41%. So I eat my words. That's pretty impressive for an off-year local election, right? What, What happened? Why do you think this is? Uh, I think the DA's race in particular got a lot of national attention. And so even people who were not necessarily um, frequent voters in the city may have turned out just because everybody was covering it. Mm -hmm. Were there any other big draws? I mean, we did elect a mayor in this election. We did, but she didn't have any legitimate opponents, honestly. So I don't think that people actually turned out to vote for London Breed specifically. All right, so let's talk about what did bring people to the polls. You mentioned the district attorney's race. Chesa Boudin is, has been declared the victor. And he, at first, in earlier counts, he was leading in first choice yes. votes and then losing in ranked choice votes. And that changed completely. Now he's winning across the board. What do you think that says about the campaigns or how voters were choosing their district attorney? There was a couple secret weapons, as Boudin mentioned during his acceptance speech. Um, One was that Bernie Sanders supported him, um, which I actually don't think was a secret. That was pretty open on Twitter (laughs) and in the media, but if that's what you want to call it. I'm sure that they made as big a deal as possible about that. (laughs) Um, Another was he said that, in particular, the group SF Rising went into communities that don't normally vote and helped educate voters and actually helped get people to the polls. So there were a lot of people who didn't normally turn out to vote that did in this election. And then one thing that um, a lot of people who have been uh, studying the results found was that Nancy Tung, who was one of the district attorney candidates, she um, got a lot of the Chinese vote. The Chinese vote is a very, very huge um, percentage of people in San Francisco, and they tend to vote for people who are also Chinese. And so because she had the last name Tung and um, people knew who she was, she got a lot of first place votes in the Chinese community. But then strangely enough, Chesa Boudin got a lot of her second place votes. And to be clear, this is strange because Boudin is much more progressive, yes. much less law and order than Nancy Tung was. So exactly. 
exactly. you know, if that's people's priorities, it's kind of unexpected that they would go from a law and order candidate to this much more progressive public defender. Yeah. So most people assume before the election that Susie Loftus was going to get those second place votes from Leif Douch and Nancy Tung. And so Boudin getting them was pretty surprising. And what it seems like happened is that he took Cantonese lessons and he wow. went out into the community and he campaigned really hard in Chinatown. And he also won the first place endorsement from Singtao Daily, which is one of our two major Chinese language newspapers in San Francisco. And so even though he and Nancy Tung have pretty different approaches to our criminal justice system, he was strategic enough um, to win the endorsements and get the name recognition in the community that he needed to secure those votes. I mean, do you have any idea how long he was learning Cantonese? This I is not an easy know. language to learn. But I would like to see him on. speak it. I yeah. think we should <laughs> quiz him. <laughs> So Boudin has big ideas about what he's going to do in the city. Um, some of them are related to the families of police shooting victims. He made that statement that got a lot of attention where he told the family of one victim of a police shooting, you'll get justice the day that I take office. And it's not super clear what exactly that means. And then there's also bigger picture items. You're paying very close attention to what's happening at 850 Bryant, our Hall of Justice. What do you see coming on the horizon for Boudin? I think Boudin drew a lot of support because he is an idealist, and we need we really like idealists in San Francisco right now. We have a lot of politicians with really bold ideas who are getting a lot of support. Um, and so I think the issues that he campaigned on are almost going to be easier than the ones that he doesn't want to talk about, which are how to get everybody in San Francisco to work together. And so the closure of 850 Bryant, which is our hall of justice, it's where our courts are, it's where our district attorney's office was until recently, um, is it's completely falling apart. In fact... And there's a jail there, right? There's a jail, yes. Um, and in fact, the city, if the building inspectors went in, it's quite likely that they would red tag their own building. No. So it's true. Red tag <laughs> meaning this is unsafe. You can't even be in here yes. anymore. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so Mayor London Breed has said that we have to empty it and shut it down by 2021. And this has been something that the city of San Francisco has been trying to figure out how to do for years and years and years. And it has been really unsuccessful. And so now the mayor says we have this timeline. OK, 2021 is like next year. Yeah. <laughs> So once Chase Boudin takes office, he suddenly has to figure out how to do this. And that means working with the sheriff's department. That means working with the police. That means working with the public defender's office, the district attorney's office, the mayor, the controller's office, the board of supervisors, and getting everybody on board with one plan. And that is not an easy task. I think, you know, no matter how idealistic he is about all of these things he has to accomplish for criminal justice reform, shutting down this jail is going to be a huge time suck. Yeah, absolutely. And what about working with the police department? I mean, we just had a little bit of a dust up where Sandra Lee Fewer, one of our supervisors, um, at Chase Boudin's campaign party on the night of the election started to chant F the POA. Obviously, she said something different, but I can't say it on the air. <laughs> and the POA is the Police Officers Association. This is the rather conservative, pretty aggressive union that represents police officers. And they absolutely took exception to that, asked for an apology. She apologized to the rank and file officers, but not for the language that she used or the POA mm -hmm. itself. And this was, you know, in, in celebration of Boudin winning or, you know, he hadn't won yet, but in celebration of his campaign. Yeah. And now here he is in the chief prosecutor's seat, 
prosecutor has to work with the police department, mm-hmm. and he's already off to a kind of icky start, not to mention, of course, the money that the POA spent on attack ads against him. So the, yeah. things are not rosy there. How is he going to manage that? I don't know. I wish I had an answer for you. And, you know, just to add to this whole pot of, of mess, the district attorney's office morale is really, really low. Um, I heard from one source that 21% of the office has quit in the past year. And I think part of that might have been that um, former district attorney George Gascon was leaving. That was pretty obvious. Morale has just been low in that office for a long time. And if you don't have the support of the team around you, how are you going to have any success out in the field. And so, well, I think that Chesa Boudin is going to do some really interesting, positive things for criminal justice reform. It it seems pretty clear that from the get-go, he's going to have to work really, really hard to unite this city. Interesting also that he got number two votes from Nancy Tung, who made a point of bringing that up over and over again, that morale Mm -hmm. in Gascon's office was so low. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how he's going to do it, but we'll see. Let's move on to the other contentious race. In District 5, um, the margins are extremely slim for that election for yes. District 5 supervisor. Dean Preston is now in the lead with just 188 votes. He's declared victory, but Valley Brown, his opponent, and the mayor's appointee has stayed mum, like very silent. What yeah. do we know? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> she. Uh, we haven't heard from her since November 5th which was the day of the election. So that's almost a week now. Yeah, it's exactly a week, it's actually. exactly a week. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's nothing on her social media, nothing on Twitter, nothing on Facebook. The reporters that I have talked to who have reached out to her for comment have not heard anything back. She's been really, really silent. And it's it's interesting because there, that leaves a lot of unknowns. You know, at the moment, Dean Preston is in the lead by 188 votes, which is very, very slim, but enough that he felt confident enough to declare victory. And that in itself is unusual because usually what happens is someone concedes and then another person declares victory. So we saw that in the DA's race, Loftus conceded, but Dean declared victory. We saw that um, for example, when Aaron Peskin beat Julie Christensen in D3 in 2015, um, he demanded that she concede before he declared victory. So to actually do things in this direction is is a pretty, um, I, I wouldn't say it's risky, but it's bold. And I'm not sure what Valley Brown is thinking right now. In fact, nobody is because she's not talking to anybody. <laughs> I will note, though, that her consultant told Mission Local that she's not ready to concede the election nor is she ready to rule out calling for a recount. How big a deal is calling for a recount in an election like this? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of time. It's going to drag all of this out a lot longer. um, And I don't know that it'll change the results, to be honest. So I think that they're probably, excuse me, probably weighing that at this time. How did the two campaigns distinguish themselves? You're a District 5 voter. What was Mm -hmm. your experience? Uh, I think that um, Dean Preston's campaign took a much more typically progressive approach. They were very boots on the ground. Um, My doorbell was ringing constantly from Dean campaigners, which is it's nice. But, you know, also stumbling downstairs in your pajamas to to answer the door at 10 in the morning on a Saturday is, um, you know, take it or leave it. Um, But I didn't actually get many uh, door knocking from Valley's campaign. It could have happened when I was not home, to be fair. Um, But I definitely got a lot more attention from Dean's campaign. So they were calling me a lot. Um, Valley's campaign called me twice. Once was a pre-recorded message from her. And another um, was on election day. And it was actually a call for my husband, but it came in through my cell phone. So it was a a bit of a confused campaigner. But I think that that really made the difference in D5. 
and that it was just the boots on the ground. Like the, there was supervisors, Ronan and Haney, out campaigning and knocking doors in D5. Chase Boudin and Dean Preston teamed up a lot for campaign work. Um, and so those two different styles, I don't know if that was enough to, to make or break the election, but it always seems like a good strategy in my book to talk to voters. This election also had a pretty significant development late in the game. News mm-hmm. broke in SF Weekly that Valley Brown had evicted several tenants 25 years ago. And when that story originally broke, she responded by saying, Valley Brown responded by saying she'd attempted to negotiate a rent amount that the tenants could pay, and actually they hadn't been paying rent for years. And then that set off a whole chain event because, as Mission Local reported and SF Weekly and The Examiner and everybody then kind of checked that and went, well, did they actually pay rent? Because the tenants, at least one of the tenants came forward and said, I definitely did pay rent. And then a little while later, they had papers. They had proof. Mm -hmm. They were paying rent. And they essentially caught her in, in, I can't say a lie because we don't know her motivations, but, you know, this this was troubling because what, what her campaign, the message of her campaign was not factual. And it was late. It was yeah. late in the game for this to come out. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, are we seeing the result or is this in spite of that? You know, that's a good question as to whether or not we're seeing the result. I think I've heard from a lot of voters in D5 who said that the eviction itself did not necessarily bother them as much as her campaign and her response to it. So the fact that, you know, whether or not it was a lie or a mistake, but she put this on flyers saying, you know, I they were not paying rent. She actually sent out flyers to thousands of people in the district saying that these tenants weren't paying rent. And that's actually, I mean, that's slanderous. Um, so I think that the way that it was handled was not not very well done. And that might have swayed voters more than the actual eviction did. I was thinking about it when the news first broke. You know, the people who vote for Valley versus the people who vote for Dean, um, there's some overlap, but they have pretty different priorities. And I think that if you really cared about evicting black tenants, um, you might already be voting for Dean. So I don't know how much of a sway it would have had. Although she did get a lot of the African-American vote in D5. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a really hard race to make any conclusions about. You can look at the district attorney's race and see, oh, you know, the number two votes from Nancy Tung, you know, this, they went to Chesa, this means X, Y, and Z. But the D5 race, the ranked choice voting didn't play a huge role in the D5 race. And when you're 188 votes apart, in a really big district, it's incredibly different to try to draw any conclusions. We'll get back to this analysis of the election results with reporter Nula Sawyer-Bashari in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP would like to thank the awesome, forward-thinking institutional supporters of the San Francisco Public Press, including the San Francisco Foundation, the James Irvine Foundation, the Reva and David Logan Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation, the Fund for Nonprofit News at the Miami Foundation, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the California Endowment, the Center for Cultural Innovation, the Institute for Nonprofit News, and the local independent online news publishers. This is KSFP-LP San Francisco, 102.5 FM.
Welcome back to Civic. Let's hear more from reporter Nula Sawyer-Bashari about what the election results tell us. We were just talking about District 5, and with Dean Preston's victory, assuming that it holds up under a potential recount, which we don't know whether it'll happen yet or not, we'll now have a pretty solid progressive majority on the board, depending on the issue, maybe even a supermajority. And that could pose some difficulty for Mayor London Breed, no? Yes, absolutely. So for those who are unaware, um, a simple majority on the board would be six votes. A supermajority would be eight. And a supermajority means that uh, any legislation that the Board of Supervisors passes with eight votes is veto-proof from the mayor. And in the mayor, in the past, the mayor has done a lot of vetoing of uh, legislation on the Board of Supervisors. So this could have a really powerful impact on her power in City Hall. Um, so, so what does this mean? If Dean Preston is, is in... And it looks like he is. And we now have this this progressive majority. What, what are some issues, for example, where progressives and moderates might, might differ? Uh, juvenile Hall was a big one. Um, that actually ended up getting quite a lot of support. But that's one of those really bold measures that this current Board of Supervisors has been pushing for. Uh, in the past, I mean, there's, there's always this kind of camp between how we want to run our city and move it forward. Do we want to work within the existing system to change things, or do we want to burn the system down and rebuild our own system? And we're seeing a lot of that on the current Board of Supervisors right now. These systems that we're looking at breaking down and rebuilding, the progressive majority is going to have a really big voice in how that is done. Do you get the sense from Mayor Breed that she sort of sees this era of this era coming toward her, that she's kind of signaling, you know, I'm, I'm ready for this, I'm ready to work with a progressive majority. Well, that's something that she has received a lot of criticism about in the past is that she has been notoriously difficult to work with. And now, especially in the wake of this election, where she's lost a lot, you know, with her um, endorsed candidates, Susie Loftus and Valley Brown now appearing to have lost their elections, um, she's under a lot of pressure to recover and um, make it look like she still has control over what's happening in the city. And her spokesperson, Jeff Creighton, over the weekend told the Chronicle, you know, no, she's really good at working with everybody. She She's, you know, focused on projects with each member of the board. She's going to be fine. So he's already trying to get ahead of the narrative that this progressive majority or in this new DA um, may negatively affect Breed's power. Can we talk about the mayor's race for a second before we move on to the propositions? Because she did get reelected with a majority, but she also saw quite a strong showing from her Republican opponent, Ellen Mm -hmm. Lee Zhao. And there there was some controversy in that race as well, because Ellen Lee Zhao paid for a billboard that many saw as extremely racist. What happened in this race? I mean, is there any can we draw any conclusions about how San Francisco voters actually feel about the leadership of the city? Yeah, I had a lot of people messaging me, asking me who they should write down, Um, people who didn't like London Breed and were like, is there any other candidate that can even be a rebellious vote? And so I wonder how much of um, Ellen Lee Zhao's votes were a kind of rebellion, we don't support the mayor vote. Um, That's possible. I don't know the psychology behind it. I think it's also a reminder of how powerful the Chinese vote is in San Francisco Um, and, and that they're a little bit more conservative and perhaps a little bit more Republican, one could even say. Let's talk a little bit about the ballot measures, which were a little bit simpler to interpret. It's just yes or no. There's no ranked choice voting here. Biggest housing bond in the history of the city for $600 million was on the ballot, and it passed. And I saw a lot of flyers in favor of it. I didn't see any really organized opposition, but it also wasn't, you know, it wasn't super easy. It wasn't the walk in the park for this to pass. Mm -hmm. Um, I did sort of get the feeling that the city was counting on 
this bond to pass though yes we really need money for affordable housing yes very badly what is going to happen with that you know, I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen with how it's distributed and um, the future of it, but I think that Prop A, which was this measure, was a really good example of San Francisco politics when they work well, which is that everybody did the work behind the scenes so that what was presented to the voters was a very clear, um, very united front and an acknowledgement of the nuances of all of these issues of affordability and housing. And I think everyone in City Hall can agree that we need more affordable housing. You know, it's just a matter of how we get there. And so that's one of those circumstances where the mayor and the supervisors worked really, really well to craft this thing that, you know, flew past. It had really, really strong support. Likewise for Proposition E, which rezoned public lands to allow the construction of educator housing and affordable housing. Previously, that wasn't allowed on public lands. Obviously, parks are excluded. But the idea is, hey, if we have parcels that the city owns, let's build housing on it mm-hmm. for teachers and other people who need it below market rates. And it also removed sort of some hurdles for affordable and educator housing on large other lots that the city doesn't own. But it does. I mean, it it tries to move things along faster. It pushes things through. And this was more of a deregulation approach. And that, Mm -hmm. to my memory, had stronger support even than some of the other things on the ballot. Does that tell us anything about the directions voters want City Hall to take? They don't just want to put money in. They want it to be done faster and done now. Yes. I mean, I th- I think the barriers to building affordable housing is a huge issue that we're going to see coming up in San Francisco time and time again, whether it's at the community meeting level where neighbors are organizing to oppose housing because they don't want their views ruined. You know, that's, that's a common one. Or yeah. whether it's at City Hall with these major ballot measures. We have to look at this um, across the board and find solutions at every single level. One thing that just barely squeaked by, Proposition D. Um, Prop D is the Uber and Lyft tax, for lack of a better term. It's a traffic mitigation tax. Um, The money will go into a fund for Muni and helping out public transportation and infrastructure for walking and biking. It's expected to raise... 30 to $35 million a year with a three-ish percent tax on right hails. And then it's, I think it's 1.5% for shared rides or something along those lines. And just barely, it just barely made it. it needed a needed a two-thirds vote and it's just barely there. Can we draw any conclusions about how people feel about taxing themselves to take over and lift rides? <laughs> well, taxing themselves is one thing, right? So yeah. the, the, the way that it was written was to tax these huge corporations. But I think that people realize that huge corporations are in it to make a profit. And so the tax would probably be passed down to them, mm-hmm. though we don't have any confirmation of that necessarily. Right. Uh, the fact that this passed with only 67.65% of the vote, despite the fact that Lyft and Uber didn't put in any money that I'm aware of to voice their opposition to it... And In fact, they put in money to support it. Yes. Uber and Lyft are like, we will pay for this. This sounds great. Let's do it. So this was another example of City Hall doing its job, you know, doing its governing, which is working with these corporations to craft something so that when it is put on the ballot to voters, there is not a huge money battle. There's not a huge war. There are not opposing messages. And so the fact that it still just barely squeaked by, I think it shows, if anything, the city's dependence on Lyft and Uber. The fact that people mm. are so dependent on it and they you know, are already struggling to survive in a really expensive city and the idea of having to pay more for a service that has honestly just become a part of daily life, uh, it, you know, it has a big impact. 
Chris Arvin, who's um, an, an analyst and he also creates cool graphic things, um, created a map <laughs> of the election results by district. And I thought the the Prop D one, I don't know if you can actually draw conclusions from this because some of these districts that are mapped out here have a very, very small number of voters. There's one district in the south of the city that uh, 100% of the district voted no it is one person who voted no (laughs) um but it does it is interesting to me that the center of the city was much more strongly in favor and the outskirts less so and you have a little uh, little pockets of no on this prop Mm -hmm. prop d on this uber and lyft tax in the outer reaches of the marina just the very tip of the city down by lake merced in the southern part of the city out in bayview hunters point i mean is it possible that People just feel like, you know, I need transit to be better before I can agree to you making it harder for me to take Uber and Lyft because transit in these parts of town, eh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's been a huge issue in the Bayview, particularly for years. And in these, you know, corner edges of the city that are largely populated by communities of color, they're historically underserved by transit. Um, I remember interviewing uh, Supervisor Shimon Walton when he was running and he was like, it's racist the way that they're treating the T as this lesser train. It's racist. You know, it's it's absolutely problematic. And so if I would love, I'm an idealist, but I would love if the SFMTA looked at this map with Prop D and said, okay, this is yet more evidence that we need to provide better public transit, more accessible public transit, more affordable public transit for people who are living on the outer skirts of the city. Yeah. Whereas in the center of the city, Muni is quite good. I'm lucky enough to live in the Tenderloin. Mm -hmm. I can take three, four, five different buses within a block of my apartment and I can get anywhere in town if I Mm -hmm. want to. Um, But yeah, it's really, it's much worse in the outskirts. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Proposition C, because this was an interesting one. This was this was a pretty devastating defeat. Um, <laughs> more than 80% of voters opposed Proposition C. And to recap, that would have been a change in vaping restrictions. It was put forward by Juul, the e-cigarette giant. And they poured millions into this proposal to adjust the city's laws and and replace them sort of with their own handwritten ones. Poured millions in. Then abruptly, a few weeks, I think in September, they decided to pull their support for their own measure. And it was was a huge deal in the city before then. I mean, they had been putting out tons of literature, had people standing on street corners advocating for people to vote yes on their measure. And then they decided, we're out. And now more than 80% no. So we should also clarify why they dropped it. I mean, I, I don't know that they released you know, a comprehensive list of why, but the no. national coverage of e-cigarette-related deaths got really, really big, really, really fast around mm-hmm. that time. Um, and it was it's a serious problem, absolutely. And the evidence just shows time and time and time again that young people in particular are taking up smoking because of these e-cigarettes. So when the evidence and the science and the medical professionals are all saying this is a problem, yeah. it's very hard to continue. Yeah. And they also you know, replaced their CEO and the outgoing CEO on his way out, apologized to families of mm-hmm. kids who might have been addicted by their product. Um, they'd also been ordered to stop advertising in ways that suggest that vaping is safer than smoking, which you know, it's kind of a major reason why people switch to vaping. (laughs) 
So yeah, there was a lot going on with Prop C. Mm-hmm. What what does this margin tell us? I mean, it's <laughs> so, a, um, a defeat by this margin of a proposition with so much money behind it. Yeah, so we are at 81.82% of voters in San Francisco uh, said no mm-hmm. to Proposition C. So it's, it would have been a bigger battle, I think, if, if they had thrown a lot of money into it. I bet that number would have shrunk, um, and I bet that they would have you know, come up with some compelling arguments um, for better or worse about it. But it's actually to go back to Chris Arvin, who probably doesn't know he's getting so many shout outs. Um, (laughs) He said, I looked through the history. He tweeted this the other day. He said, I looked through the history of SF ballot props, and it turns out that Juul made history this year. Their ballot prop to overturn e-cigarette regulations got the highest percent of no votes ever of any SF ballot measure placed by petition, a.k.a. not by the Board of Supervisors. So this was 2019, of course. Um, but the last one to even get close to this was way back in 1973. And I don't have all the details, but he listed it as 30 hours work for 40 hours pay for city workers. That got 81.29% votes for no. And then before that, it was 1922. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Disciplinary suspension, civil service training courses, salary standardization. I don't know what that means. There was also, oh, there was also Prop A in um, 1983 to recall Mayor Diane Feinstein. So we did make history <laughs> with Prop C. Oh my God. <laughs> Again, in a city that is so divided that, yeah. you know, in D5, we have 100 188 vote difference. It can seem like we're really, really divided on everything, but apparently not vaping. We're all fairly united in how we feel about it. Wow. That's impressive. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've talked about all the propositions except Proposition F, which is the money in elections proposition. This one's a little bit complicated, a little bit technical, but essentially it calls for more transparency about who is putting what money into campaigns. And it creates additional rules for political committees so they have to reveal their top three donors which they already had to but they also have to reveal how much those people paid and if those people are not people but other committees then it also has to reveal in the ad how much the top donors of that committee gave so it sort of like peels back more and more layers and then there's also restrictions on who can donate so that now includes Um, people or companies with a pending land use issue, so a development project or something that the city still has to decide on. And I think that actually that restriction extends to up to a year after the decision has already been made. So it just tightens things a little bit more. It's like it might sound a little bit like minutia, but it surprised me that people supported it pretty broadly. Does San Francisco have a problem with money in elections? Does any city not have a problem with money in elections? But really, I mean, maybe this says something about how much money actually does get poured into elections. And interestingly, we also defeated by, like you said, this historic margin, the ballot measure with the most money behind it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you talk to the average voter in San Francisco about campaign finance reform, their eyes are going to glaze over a little bit and they're going to not be that interested. Um, But in the past few years, we have seen a lot of headlines and really juicy, rich stories. You know, Ron Conway throwing money at things, um, attack ads on Jane Kim. We've seen a lot of this, um, the results of these campaign laws. And so I think that people are more aware of it in San Francisco than they might be in other places. But if nothing else, on a very simple level, it can also just signify a distrust in electoral politics in general. (laughs) You know, that we do need more transparency at every single level uh, could be 
taken from this. And yet so many people turned out. I'm so happy to say that <laughs> I was so wrong about the turnout numbers in this election. Yay, yes. voters. <laughs> Final thoughts, Nula, about where the city is going to go from here or what we can take away from this going forward. I I think with the district attorney and DA's race, we're going to see a lot more visionary legislation and policies going forward. Um, the past few years of San Franciscan politicians really taking bold steps and having really big visions and not being afraid to, like I said, burn things down and rebuild them. We're going to see a continuation of that with these two elections. But I also do worry these elections are getting so much tighter. And it's always been close, right? I mean, even nationally, you can see our presidential elections are close. But to have a race that is separated by 188 votes, to me, really speaks to the fact that we need to come together more as a city and we need to understand one another's positions and we need to be better at building bridges. And it doesn't mean that we all need to agree on everything at all. I like the diversity of opinions in this city, um, but I don't like us having elections this close. I think that we should be, do a better job of, of reaching out to one another. Great. Well, Nula, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. That was reporter Nula Sawyer-Bashari. She's an independent journalist and former news editor of SF Weekly. I'm Laura Wenis. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press.